some would argue they shouldn't even be called food. These sorts of ultra processed, industrially created, super refined substances that have been optimized to deliver such high amounts of refined carbohydrates like sugar and flour and fats at levels that way surpass what we get in nature. And so it rapidly, you can eat it so fast, it melts in your mouth and then it hits your brain so fast. When we started to mess with the food supply, that's when people really started to struggle and lose control. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Yonkers, New York, Ann Arbor, Michigan, and Sandy Mount, Ireland. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 31 of season 6, number 427 overall. Let's begin today with a did you know, and this is a good one. Did you know that there is nicotine in cauliflower? Yeah, the same nicotine that's in tobacco is found in cauliflower. But nobody is saying that cauliflower is addictive like a cigarette. So why is that? Well, today on the show, we will be exploring our mind's relationship with food as we speak with Dr. Ashley Gerhardt. And Dr. Gerhardt is an associate professor of psychology at the University of Michigan, who also happens to be a leading expert on food addiction and the developer of the Yale Food Addiction Scale. She is truly a leader in this field, and our conversation is riveting. So here are a few of the things that we touch on. Genetic predisposition. Is there one when it comes to food addiction? And what are the most addictive foods? And then from her expert's eye... We're going to be talking about cheat days and whether they are the doom of everyone's diet or why does it seem that some people can handle them while others, if they indulge in a cheat day or even just a cheat meal, it seems like their progress completely falls apart. Plus, what does research show in terms of how quickly we can become addicted to a particular food. Also, whether someone is more likely to become addicted to food if alcoholism and drug abuse runs in their family. And when the abuse is really bad, we have this sort of thing for drugs, so why isn't there something like Narcan for nachos? I mean, how can we instantaneously stop our brain from being hijacked like that. This is some very interesting insight that will help us understand our subconscious relationship with food. It is a very tight bond, a very tight bond, as you will hear. 
Let's go deep into the mind with a true pioneer in the field of food addiction, Dr. Ashley Gerhardt. Thank you so very much for making the time. Absolutely. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for speaking with me. It is truly my honor. And I'll tell you, right before we got going, I asked my wife, I said, listen, I am speaking to the grand poobah of food addiction. Is there something that you would like for me to ask her? And and my wife was like, why? But it, it wasn't it wasn't in like, why are you asking me to ask her a question? It was like, why? Why is food so yeah. daggone addictive? What is it about food that makes yeah. us just hooked? So, I, you know, the first thing I want to kind of note is we really don't think it's all food. And when I first started doing this research, you know, we didn't have a lot of research on the sorts of foods. And I think some would argue they shouldn't even be called food. Um, these sorts of ultra processed, industrially created, super refined substances that have been optimized to deliver such high amounts of refined carbohydrates like sugar and flour and fats at levels that way surpass what we get in nature. And in these sorts of packages where the fiber and the water and the protein, all that kind of nourishing stuff that makes you kind of have to stop and eat your food. Well, that's all been stripped out. And so it rapidly, you can eat it so fast. It melts in your mouth because it's almost been pre-chewed. You digest it so rapidly and then it hits your brain so fast. So we don't see people struggling with foods like bananas or apples or beans or salmon, the sorts of foods that have nourished us for most of human existence. But when we started to mess with the food supply in ways that really altered them to be maximally rewarding, maximally craveable, that's when people really started to struggle and lose control. All right. For the purpose of this interview, let's let's define what an ultra processed food is. Um, you, you talked about stripping away the good stuff, the water, the fiber. Um, what makes a food uh, ultra processed versus just a regularly processed food? Yes, this is such a good question. And it's something that the field is really you know, getting into and debating a lot right now. So there is this classification, um, it's called the NOVA classification, that looks at different kinds of foods. And it's like, you know, there's minimally unprocessed food where the ingredient is essentially what it is, apple, you know, salmon, carrot. And of course, humans have processed food uh, for a long time to allow it to be able to be shelf stable or to make it slightly more appealing. So if you're thinking of canning foods or salting foods, that's something we've done for a long time. But especially back in about the 1980s, the technology we have around food and food development and food creation had really kind of took off. And we were able to do all sorts of things to food, like create high fructose corn syrup and sort of fats like trans fats that would just stay stable, you know, even at room temperature and not rot and have all these additives and emulsifiers and extractors. And, and the industry saw this as an opportunity to make lots of money. Um, those products, you could really combine them and create these substances that when I think about it, when I think of an ultra processed food, 
I look at the ingredient label and there are a number of ingredients on there I don't know how to pronounce. And I'm a <laughs> I'm like, I have no idea what that is. This is clearly not something I could make in my home kitchen. But when I say the sorts of foods that people usually get ultra processed versions of, the ready to eat, ready to heat stuff you pick up at the grocery or the fast food restaurant, you know, it's foods like chocolates and sweets and salty snacks and you know taco bell and frozen pizza and it's now over 50 percent of the food supply here in the united states are these kind of industrial chemical concoctions um and you what they do is that we are designed by nature to like carbohydrates and to like fats because they give us calories and we need calories to survive. And that was a huge threat to human survival. So our reward system of our brain really perks up and pays attention to carbs and fats. But for most of human existence, how we got that was, you know, a handful of berries is how we got our carbs. You hunting down a buffalo is how we got fat. And they were kind of hard to get, hard to come by. And these ultra processed versions, things are stripped out and refined. So the those carbs and those fats can be isolated and then prepackaged together in ways they never existed in nature. So in nature, carbs or fat typically come separately. You usually don't have a naturally occurring food that's high in both fats and carbs. In contrast, when we think of milkshakes and pizza and ice cream and you know Taco Bell burritos, those foods are, have high levels of both refined carbs and fats that seem to have a super additive, powerful effect on our brain in a way that seems to put it into overdrive and really a similar way to how we see addictive drugs start to amplify that system. And I heard you talk once in another interview where you you really kind of drove home this point about processing and just how crazy of an effect it can have. Um, you pointed out that something as mundane as cauliflower also has nicotine in it the same way that tobacco does, right? But it's not exactly though people who are trying to quit smoking are going to go to the fridge yeah. and, you know, eat a couple cauliflower florets and, you know, suddenly their, their, their nicotine craving is gone. It's really the processing yeah. process that causes all of these cravings uh, or, or, or for the effect of it to really just kind of intensify. So, I mean, is it theoretically possible to really put cauliflower through the ringer to the point where you could crave it the same way you would a Marlboro light? You know, I would say the, so you're a, you're fully right. The thing that I think I really try and emphasize is that addictive substances, they don't really exist in nature in their pure form. You know, um, we take things like fruit and ferment it and alter it to make it an alcoholic beverage and typically add sugar, you know, carbonate it. We take a tobacco leaf. The reason the tobacco leaf is where we get our nicotine is it has higher amounts of nicotine in it than something like eggplant or cauliflower. So it's easier to refine and alter and process in a way that it deliver, delivers a rapid dose at a high level of that reinforcing substance into your brain. Cocaine is caused by processing the coca leaf and drying it, turning it into powder form. Uh, opioid is poppy seeds that, you know, poppy flowers that we alter and change. 
So when I think about our food supply and when we've taken things that, you know, our reward and motivation system was designed to want us to get carbohydrates and fat and these processed addictive substances like cocaine, like alcohol, like nicotine, they hit that reward and motivation system that was optimized to get calories and it starts to amplify and put it into overdrive where you start to chase that drug rather than things that are good for you. Now, when I think about these ultra processed foods, you know, we can't get people to eat enough fruits and vegetables. We've had these huge educational campaigns, you know, encouraging people to eat more fruits and veggies five a day, spent millions of dollars on it. And, and they usually don't have much effect. Most people don't start eating more. In general, like just imagine if there was like a, a educational campaign that was like, eat more French fries and chocolate. It'd be like, great, you don't have to tell me twice. Like, we don't need that, right? Because it's so easy. Our motivation is so high. And so when I think about what could you do to the cauliflower to make it, you know, start to compete with the nicotine product yeah you you add a bunch of flour and you deep fry it and you dip it in ranch and you amplify the amount of like carbs and fats and flavor profile and with that cauliflower then maybe it can start to compete but in its unprocessed form you know you're just not getting there's nothing magical about the chemical signature of nicotine in and of itself it's how it's delivered and tobacco products, um, often amplified by flavor additives too. You know, things like menthol and sugar and cocoa are really prevalent and are really part of the addictive package of cigarettes. And that's also part of what we're seeing with these ultra processed foods. It's not just, you know, this rapid dose of refined carbs and fats, but there's all these flavor enhancers and texturizers and things that make the taste and the feel so unique to that specific food product. And you start to get attached to that. And that starts to be some of what can trigger your cravings. A few years ago, when somebody told me this, I looked at them kind of like they had two heads initially. They were like, well, you know, Chuck, a lot of the cigarette manufacturers also got into the food game. And what you're describing there is it sounds like they are taking kind of the, the same playbook as far as refining tobacco to make it more addictive as they are what you were just describing with the cauliflower. I'm not saying that, you know, there's, I mean, there are cauliflower snacks out there that I'm sure are, are pretty darn addictive, but you know, it, it's like the same kind of playbook seems to be implemented between those tobacco companies when they were shilling cigarettes versus, you know, some of the stuff that you're seeing on store shelves that you have no idea. Oh, by the way, it's the same company. Oh, Is that any coincidence? That blew my mind. I, I like, I just learned about that too, which is again, surprising given that like I'm in this field, but I think the level of overlap between big tobacco and food companies has really surprised even the food science community. And that there's this amazing work coming out of UCSF where they've taken some of the industry papers um, that were able to be uncovered from the lawsuits against big tobacco. And they're able to look at what they've done in the food portfolios because Philip Morris and RJ Reynolds and about like the late 1970s, 80s started buying up food companies. And I think of that as them diversifying their portfolio when, you know, the, the, there's starting to be some hot takes around the addictive, harmful nature of their tobacco products. 
So they diversify, they buy up companies like Kraft and General Mills and Hawaiian Punch. And there's clear documented evidence that they were using um, you know, flavors, additives from their cigarette profile and their processed food profile, that they use specifically marketing strategies that they had honed in tobacco of targeting children and racial ethnic minority communities more aggressively to develop kind of um, very loyal brand users and doing it in a way that made it harder for parents to protect their children and harder for minority communities to divest from the support from those large industrial corporations. And so, you know, from about 1980 through the 2000s, it was big tobacco that was the biggest producer of these ultra processed foods. And so I don't trust big tobacco, uh, you know, given their, their, history and their playbook of what they did with tobacco and how good they were at making these products highly addictive and then trying to mask that so people were informed. And if people were struggling, the playbook has been with alcohol, with tobacco, with opioids. Oh, it wasn't us. It wasn't our products that we made and refined and used, you know, huge research and development budgets to maximize, you know, their potency. It was just a few bad apples that if they just had more willpower, then it wouldn't be a problem. And that playbook has been very, very effective at diverting attention and blame away from the companies that will say, we're creating our ultra processed food products to have maximum craveability, to hit your bliss point, to enhance moorishness. So you want more and more and more. To me, those are all just code words for addictive. Mm -hmm. And and you mentioned the word bliss point, and that brings me to kind of reward pathways and how the brain just loves to be happy. Totally. Um, how do those reward pathways work specific for food? Say you eat that slice of cake. What happens upstairs in that old dome of ours? Yes. So, you know, one of some research um, that's come out of the University of Michigan, uh, Kent Barrage and Terry Robinson have done some groundbreaking work that we almost have like two systems and the reward and motivation part of the brain. So we have the part that gives you that bliss, that kind of liking, um, that's thought to be more of your opioid system that exists in your brain, um, endocannabinoids. Uh, these are the things that give you that pleasure, blissy feeling. And there is evidence that these fats and these carbs and sweet taste release opioids and endocannabinoids in the system. And, and kind of that same mechanistic pathway that you know opiates or pot would do. But the thing that seems to really distinguish addictive substances is what they do to dopamine. And dopamine is the neurotransmitter that seems to really enhance our motivational drive, how much we want something, how much we crave it, how much we would go out of our way to get it, how much we can't think of anything else about it. And one of the interesting things about addictive drugs is that over time, you know, you first get it, that first bite of ice cream early on, you, you know, you have a drink of alcohol and it tastes so great it, that you get that pleasure, you get that bliss and the dopamine system wakes up and says, oh, wow, that was great. I need to remember every cue that tells me when this is available. And when I see that cue, I need to seek it out and go get it. But over time, the more you use addictive substances, 
is that bliss, sometimes it fades. You know, I've, I'm a clinical psychologist and I've treated people with substance use disorders. And they've said like, I don't even get high anymore. Like it's not as enjoyable as it used to be as when I first started drinking or I first started using. But when I see that cue or that person I used to use with, or it's that certain time of day, I just, I want it so bad, I can't think of anything else. And what we see in the context of these ultra processed foods is they, they hit that big stamp of bliss by hitting you with both sugar and fat and all these flavor enhancers that make those you know substances even more potent. But our dopamine system really pays attention to the cues and the dopamine system gets released as well at the magnitude with sugar and fat and ultra processed foods at about that same magnitude as we see with ethanol that's in alcoholic beverages or nicotine that's in tobacco. And so it's really amplifying it and stamping in that next time you see that cue, next time you see the Taco Bell sign or the golden arches, or you walk by that vending machine at work, you it triggers that wanting, that drive, that desire that's hard to satiate. And so with food, we see that, you know, with these foods, it's, it's those sorts of reward and motivation processes happen the moment you see the cue that tells you that it's available or that cue that makes you want it or think about it and dopamine starts to get released when it's when you're smelling it when it first hits your tongue particularly for sweet taste uh, we're like so we come out of the womb wired for liking sugar and sweet taste it is a, a powerful actor on our brain from the moment we're born and then once the food starts to hit the gut and is digested, there's evidence that you get a second surge of dopamine as the body breaks down the fats and the sugar and they enter into the bloodstream. And then you know those changes in the bloodstream cross into the brain and you get another surge of dopamine. So you're kind of getting these like repeated hits of you know reinforcement, desire, wanting for these substances in ways that are you know, more, more amped up at, at a magnitude that really kind of mimics what you'd see with something like nicotine and ethanol rather than let's say like a handful of carrots. Let me ask you this. How quickly does that, what I would call the blunting effect wear off in terms of food versus maybe, you know, alcohol? Um, Cause I would venture to say, you know, if somebody's a everyday drinker, right, it's going to take more for them to get drunk over time. Yes. But if they stop drinking and say go a couple of months and then they have a beer or a glass of wine, they're probably going to get buzzed a lot faster than they had been. Yes. And in terms of food, I can tell you that it took me about three days one time to go without Taco Bell before I was in complete panic, just freak out like straight rage mode to the point where I put my fist through a wall and then I put my fist through a door because I hadn't had Taco Bell, which sounds absolutely crazy. But when I finally catered, cratered because I couldn't take it anymore and I took that first bite, it was like instantaneously yeah. everything was right in my world again. And had I not gone those 72 hours, I don't think I would have had as powerful of a reaction. So I'm just curious how quickly that blunting effect can fade uh, when it yes. comes to food. You know, I would say we don't, no one has looked at that very important question of what the timeline looks like right now. What we do know is what you're describing there is what we call kind of a deprivation effect that we see with addictive substances is that particularly in the first few days, 
if you haven't used it, if you haven't smoked your cigarette or gotten your, you know, ultra processed food fix or your alcoholic beverage, that the first few 48 to 72 hours is when your system is really reacting and, and, and you're in this withdrawal state and your body is feeling deprived because it's gotten used to getting that fix and all of a sudden it's not there. And, and so that there's some evidence that that is the peak point where you're just jonesing for it. You're craving it so bad. There's evidence that if you can make it, you know, two weeks, that some of these withdrawal symptoms that make it so hard to cut down that they start to lessen and things start to feel a little better. And then, you know, the longer you go within like a few months, things are kind of have stabilized and you feel better than you did when you were using the substance where you're having all these like hits and crashes all the time. When it comes to kind of that, how long would it take, you know, for the system to reset? There's also some evidence about our taste and how when we're consuming foods that are really sweet and really fatty and really salty, there's work done here at University of Michigan by Dr. Monica Duss. And it finds that the more sweetness and saltiness and fattiness that we're eating, our taste buds starts to, our kind of taste profile starts to adjust. And we start to expect that level of intensity. So let's say you ate an apple and you thought, oh, this apple is sweet and crisp and enjoyable. And I enjoy, I really like it. And then for two weeks, you eat tons of sweet, sugary, overly intense, ultra processed foods. And you eat that same apple again, that it won't taste as sweet. Your body has said, no, no, I don't get out of bed for anything that is not this sweet and this intense. There is good evidence though, that if you change the diet, most of the evidence is around salt within, you know, a couple weeks, your body will readjust. And so all of a sudden, you know, something you can find pleasure from less salty foods than you had when your taste had changed to get adjusted to so much flooding of salt. Yeah. Anecdotally, I, I can tell you that that's 100% true. Um, just eating, uh, it was, a like a, a ready-made, um, gosh, what was it? It was like an Indian doll that came in a pack and you put it in, in the microwave for 90 seconds. And I hadn't had anything like that in forever. Yeah. And all I could taste was the salt. And yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, this is just a salt bomb. And then you flip it over and you look at the amount <laughs> that they, that's actually in there. It's like overwhelming. And I was like, well, there you go. It's funny how, how your, your taste buds change. And I don't think Dr. Gerhardt, maybe, you know, you could talk about this as well. I doubt today, even though as much as I had in a huge affinity for Taco Bell way back when, if I were to have a bite of it now, don't think I would get anywhere near the same sense of enjoyment. I, I think that you're, I think you're right. I think, you know, what can happen also it's, this isn't, especially in humans, it's not just a pure reward process. I think what we've seen is that as we, as you can learn about things and the way that you view a certain substance changes and instead of thinking about it, the expectations you might have about pleasure and what it's going to do for you emotionally and how it's going to distract you from stress, you know, as you start to kind of cognitively change your expectations and instead see, actually, I feel way worse after I eat these foods and I'm not going to feel better. And these foods have been designed to try and trick me 
And I don't feel, I mean, one of the things I think is so fascinating about these, you know, ultra processed foods is that even though there's so many calories, because of the way they're created, they often don't make us feel as full or satiated. And so you can keep piling them in, even though you're getting, you know, a thousand calories because they don't have the fiber and the water and the protein that other foods do. And so as you start to kind of cognitively learn that actually this this isn't that great anymore. I don't like it that you're not as easily pulled back in to the supra additive nature of these stimuli. And you start to realize how good you feel when you're eating real food, you know, and you almost feel like I've always, I've like always been like, you know, we have dry January now where it kind of helps people take a step back and be like, oh, my relationship with alcohol has maybe gotten a little out of control or, um, wow, I feel a lot better when I'm not drinking alcohol. My sleep is better and I feel less of a crash. I'm always like, if we can almost get like a 30 day, you like dry ultra processed food February, well, I guess that'd be 28 days, you know, and you just saw how much better you felt when you're eating real nourishing food that it would make transitioning back into those ultra processed foods, maybe a little bit less appealing. Well, here's the interesting thing though. I, I agree with you 1000%, but I think then we also need to reshape the way that we look at food because yeah. I mean, how often do you hear of somebody going on a diet and we're going to put that one in quotes as we often do here on the show, but then the reward after four weeks and maybe they've lost 10 pounds is to indulge in the things that they've taken off of their plate for that time, you know? So maybe it's a pizza, maybe yeah. it's a trip through the drive-through. And then I can tell you from experience that once you reintroduce that back into your system, that kind of, you're really tempting fate for that diet to fail again because you're going to eat it the one day. Oh man. Yeah. I remember how good this tastes, right? Maybe you, your taste buds haven't completely changed at that point. And so you want it the next day and the next day and the, and the next thing, you know, the trips to the gym have stopped, the salads have stopped and it's been replaced by burgers and fries all the time again. What are your thoughts on cheat days and using food as a reward? Ooh, that is, you know, I, I would say we haven't done a ton of science on that. I would say some concerns, that are arisen for me, you know, I think different people have different things. And for some people, maybe particularly people who don't feel a massively huge addictive pull, you know, we do see that having a personal history of difficulties with other addictive substances or having a lot of people in your family who've had challenges with things like alcohol or cigarettes, that can be a risk factor for you to develop um, uh, an addictive relationship with these ultra processed foods. So I think it's important to know where your risk profile is. Um, some people, the cheat day might release some steam in general for folks who are experiencing more of this, like kind of push pull addictive battle with these foods. We know that what we call intermittent access, where, you know, you restrict for a while and then you binge and then you restrict again, and then you binge that cycle seems to sensitize the addictive mechanisms in the brain. It seems to make dopamine even more likely to flood at those cues that say, oh, the, the, you know, the fast food is right around the corner and make it harder to resist. And so I often think more along that realm of 
trying to find sustainable diets, sustainable lifestyles for people that kind of focus on a harm reduction approach is how I think about it. Um, so you will, we'll see that for people, um, that, you know, sometimes people will set this, like, I have this perfect diet in mind and it's so narrow and it's so hard to adhere by that it starts this vicious cycle of you know the what the hell effect like i'm never ever ever eating anything that ever has chocolate on it ever again and then they have a bite of chocolate and then they are off to the races right and so we we want to figure out what is actually sustainable for people but what i often think about is that those foods that are the highest risk foods for you, the ones that might be the foods you would most want on the cheat day, the full pizza, the milkshake. Those are foods that I would often think about, you know, more taking a break from uh, because those high risk foods, especially if they are there, how you start to reward yourself and it starts to take up such a, a high level of importance in your life, you're, you're kind of making a food that's already designed to be so rewarding for you even more salient and rewarding. And so uh, to me, I would think it, in the long term, it's better to think about how do you reward yourself in a way that is not something that might trigger addictive processes for you. It's good to reward yourself. But if you're prone to this addictive response to those foods, a cheat day could be really risky. Yeah, yeah you know, uh, and, and it took me years to get to a point where I was even comfortable eating a wrap um, you know, just filled with like spinach and sauteed mushrooms and red peppers and, you know, like all healthy vegetables, maybe some balsamic or hummus in there because I, I equated a wrap with the burrito from Taco Bell. And that was 100% psychological, right? I mean, that's, that's 100% up here. Nonetheless, it was a powerful thing. So yeah. like, there was like a whole lot of, well, what's going to happen when I take this bite? Is it going to be the same way that it was years ago when I was on that cookie diet and went three days. Like, yeah. is this flood, this tidal wave of everything going to wash back over me? And this is going to be the end of it. Luckily it wasn't, but it took me like a long time just to even like feel comfortable dipping my toes into that water. And to this day, doc, I still think about that every single time I'm about to sit down with the wrap. It's crazy. It just I is. Know. I think I don't think of it as crazy. I think of it as that there is, especially those those cues, like we think about it with people who are trying to do things like non-alcoholic beer. Like for some people that helps feel like, you know, it's kind of adjacent to beer and it can help kind of stem my cravings. For other people, it actually primes them to just want the real thing. And there are individual differences on that that people kind of have to explore for themselves what does and doesn't work. I think a lot in my work about context, um, you know, we'll work with people who've maybe had some riskier drinking and don't want to fully abstain, but want to learn to drink in a less harmful way. And so one of the things we'll do is be like, you know, alcoholic beverages differ in how risky they are. Uh, a low alcohol beer, a glass of wine is a really different beast than, you know, Bacardi 151, these substances that have higher potency and higher addictive potential. For a lot of people, it means those food, those alcoholic substances that are on the highest risk, that is something that just may never be back in your life. But if you're going to try and have the glass of wine or the beer, we really focus on the importance of doing it in safe, 
context and in safe settings. So not when you're super stressed, not when you're super hungry, not when you're with triggering people. And so I've thought about this a lot with these foods, that foods, I think, for individuals are really going to vary and how risky they are for them to trigger that addictive pull. And when you're trying to figure out where are my boundaries where things are safe or not, or you want to try something that's a little riskier for you, that it's important to do it in a context. Often, I think with other people, often in a time where you're not stressed, emotional, or super hungry, to be able to find ways to figure out what works for you to make your life most livable, but that isn't triggering you to constantly be in a battle with what you are or aren't eating. A uh, couple more. I can tell you right now, I would love to bring you back because there's just so much ground to cover here. This is, I mean, it's just fascinating, fascinating stuff. Um, are we able to say whether or not men or women are perhaps more likely to be addicted to food? You know, it's been really fascinating, Chuck. Like, it, it's really, I've seen a lot of variability in studies. Um, I would say overall, like when we've kind of collated across like all these studies, it seems to be pretty equitable actually between men and women. We see that that might differ at different life stages. So when we look at teenagers, it looks like uh, teenage girls might be at slightly more risk than teenage boys. We've had another study and older adults and we saw, especially in um, women 55 to 64 years of age, that they were about twice as likely to meet for ultra-processed food addiction relative to men in that same cohort. But then there's other life stages. I think of early adulthood and kind of middle age as the times where this is when we see a really high escalation of difficulties, often because people are really stressed and really time-strapped. And I think one of the biggest challenges is convenience. You know, ultra processed foods are convenient. They have all these additives that help them just sit on a shelf and you either open up a bag and just pour it in your mouth or you heat it for a few seconds and it's ready to go. Real food takes time and prep and it rots and you can't just have it like sitting out all the time. And so I think people get really hooked on convenient, highly rewarding ultra processed foods and early adulthood and a middle age in a way that's a really kind of equal opportunity problem. The women 55 to 64, that's an interesting tidbit there. Are you looking at whether or not that ties into hormonal changes at that point of life? Yes. Yeah, so we actually, a colleague of mine, Kelly Klump at Michigan State, um, has just started to do some great research on menopause and hormones and eating and binge eating. And we will be um, assessing for uh, food addiction symptoms and to be looking at how Hormonal changes, especially that occur during menopause and at certain times of life, we know that our reward system is intimately linked with our hormone systems of stress and estrogen and testosterone. And as those things fluctuate, our sensitivity and vulnerability to these ultra processed foods, you know, also thinking about that time of adolescence for um, young girls, we really don't know. And we really need to think in this kind of broader systemic way about risk and risky periods. And then it might change over the course of life that you, you might have not had that much of a problem, but then there might be a really stressful time in your life or um, a, a hormonal transition that could then suddenly change your relationship with these foods in a way that we need to be aware of the potential risk associated with them. 
Two more. Um, you came out with a poll not too terribly long ago that found one in eight uh, adults over the age of 50 fit the criteria for food addiction. Um, given the fact that obesity rates are what they are, the fact that they continue to climb, do you suspect that that one in eight will also continue to increase over time? Unfortunately, yes. Um, and that we see that I, we see some what might be called like a cohort effect. So in those older adults, you know, I really think of the time point when the food environment started to change in such a toxic way, that is when we started to see this escalation of obesity and diet related disease and binge eating was all around that like late 1970s, 1980s moment. And there's lots of factors that were feeding into it. One of those to me was though, big tobacco getting into our food supply. And so if you were already, you know, 20 or 30 years of age, when the food environment started to change, you may be less vulnerable than somebody who was two or three years old when that food environment changed, because a greater percentage of your life and more of those critical developmental years when your tastes are getting established and your rewards are getting established and your brain is really developing and is really plastic, more of that was lived in a moment where you were just entrenched in a toxic food environment that we weren't even, I mean, it took us a while to catch up to how bad things were. I am really concerned about what we're seeing with, there's estimates that 12% of children meet the clinical cutoff for an ultra processed food addiction. And we don't usually see addiction in children, right? We protect them from alcohol and cigarettes and things like that who's uh, i'm so concerned to see how this tracks over time because if 12 percent are already hitting that in childhood our research really finds that adolescence and early adulthood is when things really start to then escalate and get out of control and so i'm concerned that now people are living their whole life you know us included from the moment we're born and this level of toxicity of these really addictive ultra processed foods and what is that going to mean as this kind of continues to snowball, uh, continues to snowball over the course of life? And well, we'll just have to see, unfortunately. But I do feel optimistic that we're starting to see, like, it's no longer kind of a debate, I think, as much about that food and the food environment is playing a really central role in the spread of obesity and diet-related disease around the globe. And now I think we're really trying to fully understand what is it about the sorts of foods that are in our environment now. And I would argue, you know, it's not just that they're unhealthy for you, um, but that they hook you in an addictive sort of way. So even if you know, you know, you're having health consequences or mental health consequences, that it, it makes it so hard to not just keep coming back for more. It's, it's pretty wild. It's very wild. And I know that, you know, these these drugs, they work a little bit differently. But, I, you know, I can just see somebody watching this or listening to the podcast saying, well, why can't there be something like naloxone or Narcan for nachos, for goodness sake? Like, why isn't there that yet? Yeah, you know, there actually is a little bit of research on that, if you believe it. Um, so 
there is some work out there in the context of obesity and binge eating and a little bit on food addiction of people using naloxone and bupropren, so um, psychopharmacology for addiction that you're kind of targeting these reward mechanisms that seems to have some, some effect for reducing um, addictive eating, reducing binge eating. Now, like, even with alcohol and things, you know, like that hasn't been... It's not a slam dunk, like 100% home run. We just give everybody naloxone and there's no more problems. But I do think with addiction, we've generally been kind of slow to think about what are medications um, that we can integrate into our psychological and behavioral health treatments to try and help people really succeed. And I think that is a potential future direction to look at more. And I would say, you know, the new GLP-1, um, you know, Wygosi sort of medications that are coming out right now, there's some fascinating work that's anecdotal at this point, but that those medications that are leading people to lose a lot of weight and feel more in control of their eating also seem to maybe help people drink less alcohol. Um, and so I think the mechanisms and the parallels here are so overlapping um, that we should really be doing a lot of crosstalk across addictive drugs and addictive ultra processed foods to think how can we help each other? But we've learned from every addiction epidemic under the sun that we never are able to treat our way out of it. We have to take courageous, policy, legislative litigation changes to alter the environment that surrounds the addictive drug. So it's not cheap and easily accessible and heavily marketed, particularly to kids, um, that changing those levers in our society is what gives our treatments a fighting chance to work and makes less people get kind of caught up in that addictive net of that sort of substance. We're going to leave it there. That's a heck of a to be continued. I love what you just said. You know, it's really hard to treat your way out of something, which means that there have to be other changes that are made to make uh, that change last. Um, yeah. Otherwise, you're just you're trapped in the cycle. You're absolutely trapped in the cycle. There is so much more we could get into with that. But I will tell you what, this 41 minutes and 57 seconds have just flown by in the blink of an eye and this has just been a real treat i am so enthralled by all of the research that you have done and continue to do and i really look forward to dr gerhardt continuing the conversation absolutely. with you. absolutely i would love to and thank you again for taking the time to invite me i really appreciate it dr gerhardt i mean in terms of the impact that her research can have for us as the obesity and health epidemic worsens, I mean, once more people become ready to listen, I mean, her research can strike with every bit the force that Dr. Dean Ornish's work did, or Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn's, or T. Colin Campbell's. Her work is on the cusp of being truly revolutionary. And once we understand what's happening and why it is happening, we will all be better positioned to make healthier choices. I mean, think back to what Dr. Gemma Newman and I were talking about a couple of episodes ago, talking about removing these high fat, high salt, high sugar cheat snacks from register aisles at the grocery store. 
that's when our impulse control is really, really, really low. I mean, we're just standing there and twiddling our thumbs and staring at this stuff. It's so hard to say no. Especially if someone is addicted to food, then that little impulse, that little cheat can become a big problem. One slip can lead down a very treacherous path as we learned here today with Dr. Gerhardt. You know, and it's tough. It's tough and it doesn't even seem fair for those of us who are severe food addicts. People who I've known for years and years and years still can't quite understand why I won't just eat one of this or one of that. And when I paint for them this picture of an ex-smoker having a cigarette or an alcoholic having a beer, then they seem to understand that analogy. But it's still so hard for them to get the fact that the same kind of thing can happen with food. It's the same thing. But over time, with research like what Dr. Gerhardt is doing, maybe then, maybe then we can get a better handle on it. And everyone can gain better understanding. Now, that's not to say that everyone is judgmental about it. Most of the time, it's simply inquisitiveness. People just are curious about it. But I'll tell you this. As a food addict, not a doctor, but simply as someone who lives this every single day. It is up to you to figure out what you are going to eat before you go out with friends. This is huge. People who are in the battle think that their social life has to suffer because they feel like they can't control themselves. And yeah, initially that is very true. But over time, as you become a little bit more comfortable and a lot more confident, if you're going out with friends, you're going to a restaurant. Initially, you may be wondering, well, how am I going to piece things together? Should I do a bunch of healthy sides that they have? That's a great place to start. The sides that most restaurants have, you can work with that. Or do you get a salad and modify the heck out of that? Strip it of the cheese, the bacon, the unhealthy stuff. You can do that and then ask the restaurant to throw in some sides on that salad as well. Make it your own. I did that at a pizza place recently. Ordinarily, I wouldn't go to a pizza joint, but when I was speaking in Florida recently in Gainesville, I was hanging out with some friends there and I hadn't seen them in a number of years and they knew that I was vegan. So they suggested going to this pizza place that had vegan cheese. They had some vegan options. Now, I'm not going to eat super processed vegan cheese. That's my choice. But I don't expect them to know this either. And it's not like I wanted to have a major conversation about it. Didn't need to become a big deal unless they brought it up. So when we got to the pizza place, I went the salad route. And it turned out pretty well. I mean, this place, 
it had a banging vinaigrette dressing. I mean, it was really, really, really good. So I got that on top of a bunch of greens that they had, plus some banana peppers and olives and green peppers and roasted broccoli. Yeah, roasted broccoli. Believe it or not, roasted broccoli was one of the toppings that they had to offer for their pizzas, which I was really impressed with. So I just got a bed of greens with this vinaigrette and a whole bunch of these veggies that they could have just as easily topped a veggie pizza with. And it turned out quite well. So little things like that can help you along the way. But I'm not going to kid you either because it does take time to be able to build up the willpower to not give in to temptation especially if you're going to a restaurant like that. I mean, it was years, years into this journey before I ever would have felt comfortable setting foot in a pizza place. But it's okay now. It's okay now because I know when I go there what I'm going to get. I already have it mapped out in my mind. And so when you do that, it's almost like that pizza isn't even on the menu. There's nothing else on the menu other than what it is you're going to order. So that helps. But it takes time to get there. So what are your tips? What are your tricks if this is something that you have also dealt with? I would love to know. Let's get that conversation going. Hit me up on Twitter or Instagram. I am at Chuck Carroll, WLC. The Barnard Medical Center is powering this episode of the Exam Room Podcast. Their doctors and dietitians practice lifestyle medicine and promote plant-based nutrition with in-person visits in their Washington, D.C. office and telemedicine appointments in 18 states. Visit barnardmedical.org or call 202-527-7500 to learn more. That's barnardmedical.org or call 202-527-7500. For today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Ashley Gerhardt for being here and raising our health IQs with a conversation that was absolutely fire. Thank you, Dr. Gerhardt. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. Plant-based.